Welcome to the first episode of Bureau 42's Comic Book Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. So this is, well, sort of the first episode. We did have the first two episodes as part of Bureau 42's Comic Book Podcast pilot season, and this was the winning podcast from that series. And we're doing this based on reader suggestions and listener suggestions. The first and most prominent suggestion was Pym Particles and discussing those. So because Pym Particles are closely associated with a character who hasn't been as prominent in the Marvel Universe as others, uh, he doesn't have his movie yet. It is in production, starring Paul Rudd, although we don't know if Paul Rudd is playing Hank Pym or one of the other Ant-Men. This is the first addendum being inserted because this was originally recorded in advance. We now know Paul Rudd is playing Scott Lang, and Michael Douglas is playing Hank Pym. But Ant-Man was one of the first creations under the Marvel banner. So in 1961, the company originally known as Timely, and later as Atlas, released Fantastic Four number one under the Marvel banner. It was a different type of superhero comic. They wanted to maybe dissociate themselves from the rest of the company in case the experiment was not a success. So they branded themselves Marvel. One of their early creations was a character named Hank Pym. And he first appeared in Tales to Astonish number 27. And that in that issue, it was quite clear that he was not intended as a superhero. It was a sci-fi anthology title at the time. And he was a character who figured out how to shrink himself down to the size of an ant and ended up having to do that to defend himself from some petty thugs, almost died in an anthill except for one ant that was his friend. That was the only reason he survived and when he grew back to normal size and everything was okay, his response was, well, I'm never doing that again. A few months later, superheroes are booming. Fantastic Four was a success. One of DC's most successful characters was the Atom, who was a science-changing hero. So they pulled Ant-Man, or Hank Pym, out of their, their backstores at Marvel, dusted him off, and made him a superhero. So we never know why he was in that never-again mode and then suddenly used his powers to be a hero, but he did. Now, Pym Particles have become what is the driving force behind his powers. I say they've become that because if you go back to the original stories, his shrinking and growing abilities were originally by chemicals or what he called potions. You drink one and you shrink down, you drink the other and it expands. There are issues with that. First and foremost, if you shrink because you're digesting it, why do your clothes shrink with you? They did. He wasn't just naked inside a massive pile of clothing on the floor. So, I mean, the answer at the time is clearly, the Comics Code Authority says so, or just no thought to it whatsoever. So that was the mechanism that made him shrink. That's one of the issues with uh, digestive delivery. Another issue with that is that digestion takes time, and it especially takes time for the compound that you're digesting to work its way throughout the body systems. So if you're doing any sort of change by digestion, you could run into synchronization issues. You know, so you swallow this, your stomach and esophagus should shrink first, but the outer layers of your body haven't been exposed, they won't shrink yet. So you wouldn't have the immediate shrinking that we see here, and it wouldn't be uniform. If you're using a digestive delivery system for something that can take a six-foot-tall-ish man and shrink him down to the size of an ant, it's going to kill him. That's the bottom line. The delivery just isn't fast enough. So in later issues, they do change the mechanism from the, the chemical that he drinks into a gas pellet that he inhales. Similar issues, but instead of having the stomach shrink and rip itself away from the surrounding tissues, now it's your lungs. Either way, 
you're going to have issues because your body is going to shrink and respond at different rates. Now, the current incarnation is that anything that has been pre-treated with PIM particles is now able to shrink. And it shrinks when it receives a mental signal, sometimes broadcast through the enhancements by electronics, sometimes not. This is a lot better. If it's radio waves, speed of light, that kind of shrinking, I mean, even if it's an electronic delivery system, information in an electric circuit travels at about 40 to 60% of the speed of light. That is fast enough to go from a person's head to their feet with negligible delay. So in that case, you know, if we're doing an electromagnetic pulse or some sort of circuitry burst that says it's time to kick in, then the uneven shrinking rates are essentially a non-issue because the difference is negligible by comparison. So that part is an improvement. Unfortunately, there's also the shrinking itself, and that is an issue. So shrinking characters are not at all uncommon. As I said, DC already had the Atom running by the time Marvel unveiled Hank Pym. After Hank Pym as Ant-Man and later Giant-Man and Goliath, shrinking and growing. Then Marvel introduced Scott Lang as the second Ant-Man and Eric O'Grady as the third irredeemable Ant-Man. I believe all of them have been dead at some time or another, but at the time of this recording, only one of them is dead right now. Now, it's not clear whether it's going to be Hank Pym or Scott Lang in the upcoming Ant-Man movie by Edgar Wright, but we'll see. Addendum 2. As per Addendum 1, it now is very clear. But in any event, we do have the shrinking itself, and it's not just in comic books. We've also got, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Incredible Shrinking Man, The Incredible Shrinking Woman. On the flip side of this, because Pym Particles also turn him into Giant Man or Goliath, and Yellow Jacket goes both ways, we've got your classic 1950s horror movies where we have them, which are ants, expanded to tremendous size. And similar things like that. So the concept of having sudden changes, it's not at all uncommon. I mean, we've got multiple versions of Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. So the question is, how does this work? Is there a scientific basis that can make us shrink? Well, one of the common arguments you'll hear in these, I mean, it was made crystal clear that this is the methodology they were using in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. It's all based on the notion that most of atoms and molecules are made up of empty space. Now, while that's mostly true, you could also say it's largely false. That, that concept is essentially the way we understand atomic structure by the time we're done public schools. Typically, the most advanced model of atomic structure we have at public schools is the Bohr model. And that's often showing up in science courses that not everybody takes. Right. We've got your biology, your chemistry, and your physics are your main three choices. A lot of areas, you only need one to pass high school, and they're not too picky about which one that is. Bio tends to be the most popular because it's the least mathematical. So success in biology is not tied to success in any subject other than your basic language arts, reading comprehension, and writing, but that's tied to success in virtually every subject anyway, so... You know, there's no additional constraints. Chemistry and physics, you need to succeed both in the biology and on the math end, particularly in physics. So let's run down the concept of the atom 
as I said, typically in the Bohr model, as we understand it when we finish high school physics. So this goes back to turn of the 20th century. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, some physicists, including most famously Lord Kelvin, were predicting that physics research was almost done. They had what they thought were complete theories and complete ideas about how the universe worked. All they had to do was go to the lab, do some tests, and figure out whose specific theory was the one that was correct. Well, imagine their surprise when they went into the lab, did the experiments to figure out, is it A, B, or C? And the experimental results of the universe, or whatever you want to call it, answers with none of the above. They started getting into what they call wave-particle duality. So the concept here is that they were trying to wrap their heads around what the basic building blocks of matter were. And some were debating whether or not they're waves, some were debating whether or not they were particles. Most of these debates were centered around light. Because the general concept was that particles would have mass, and anything that has mass would therefore be made of particles. They even considered things to be mostly continuous media. So iron wouldn't be a series of atoms arranged next to each other, it was just some sort of iron that went all the way through. And, you know, no spaces, no air gaps, nothing. It was just one continuous material. That kind of got turned on its ear. They did some early experiments and found that no atoms weren't uniform blocks. They were actually made up of components. They'd figured out that the electrons that flow through electric currents are parts of the atoms. And you could actually separate that from the rest of the atom. So that's when they came up with the plum pudding model where the electrons were embedded in this positively charged pudding that was the rest of the material. Ernest Rutherford had one of his grad students who had come in with a theory background and wanted to give him a pretty straightforward experiment with obvious results for practice, just to get used to experimental methodology. Now, this poor sap was sent into a chamber. First, he had to go to a light desensitization chamber, or light sensitization chamber. Essentially, they were checking backscatter. So they would take a thin strip of gold, and they would fire alpha particles at it from a radioactive source, and they had a room covered with phosphorus, which glows when alpha particles hit it. But in order to see it, you need very, very low light conditions and very sensitive eyes. So this poor grad student first had to sit in a light, tight room, total darkness, for 45 minutes, just so his eyes could adjust so he could take the data. They went to the larger room where the actual experiment happened, and he sat next to a radioactive source for 8 to 10 hours without interruption. So eating, drinking, going to the bathroom, any of these would require leaving, that took time. He didn't have that time. He had to sit there for 8 to 10 hours and just record tiny little light flashes as they showed up on the walls when these alpha particles bounced off the gold foil. Now, they were expecting these to be bunched up pretty much straight behind the gold. What they found was that most of these radioactive particles went straight through, as though the gold wasn't even there, but those that did bounce, bounced hard, and they bounced in all directions, some of which came back in almost exactly the same direction they came in. So this grad student is collecting all this data, even at the end of the day. So 45 minutes in the pre-chamber or antechamber, 8 to 10 hours taking the data, and then on the way out, another 45 minutes in that chamber, as they're slowly cranking up the light in there, so he doesn't get blind and doesn't get you know massive amounts of pain and shock when he walks out into normal light conditions, he collected all the data, 
took it to Ernest Rutherford in surprise because this wasn't showing that predominantly straight through thing that they had and bunching up afterwards. It was very different. And Ernest Rutherford ended up winning the Nobel Prize for interpreting all the data that his grad student collected and what they thought would be a pretty inconsequential confirmation of theory. He's the one that realized most of the mass of an atom is in this tiny little ball in the middle called the nucleus, and the electrons must orbit around it. The original idea for orbits was that they were more like planetary orbits, where they're just kind of spinning around and going through it that way. Now, later on, they discovered that, you know, these particles weren't straight-up particles. So picture tiny little billiard balls orbiting around other billiard balls. There are a couple of questions that are raised. First of all, this nucleus is positively charged enough to counteract the negative charge on the electrons. So is it one continuous lump, or is that made up of billiard balls? Initially, they were thinking it was one continuous lump, because I had to explain why this positively charged thing wasn't ripping itself apart. Turns out, it is made up of component particles, and that's what they needed to explain why things are radioactive in the first place. But then that begs the question, why aren't these protons pulling themselves apart? And in 1932, when Chadwick discovered the neutron, that added the other question, how are the neutrons staying in there? Well, it turns out there are four forces in nature. There's the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force that most of us are familiar with. The other two are strong and weak nuclear forces. The weak nuclear force drives radioactive activities and radioactive decay. And the strong nuclear force is what binds the nucleus together. Those are both limited range. So the gravitational force and the electromagnetic force have no distance limit. We are being drawn gravitationally towards the furthest galaxy, so far away we can't even see it from here, through these forces. There's no distance limit, but the further away you get, the less powerful those forces are. The strong and weak nuclear forces are only strong and weak relative to each other. They are stronger than any other force in nature, but their distance limit is hard and fast and smaller than the size of an atom. That's why a lot of the larger nuclei are unstable and why we don't see a lot of the high-end nuclei on the periodic table. So if you look at your periodic table, we don't have great data on large ones. They've only been made in labs and they're not stable. They don't stick around for a long time. It's the strong nuclear force that binds the nucleus together. But if that nucleus gets too big, then it exceeds the range that that force acts over. And now suddenly two protons on opposite sides of the nucleus are being driven apart by the electromagnetic forces, and there is no strong magnetic or strong nuclear force to bind them together. It adds stress to that nucleus, and that's where the weak nuclear force kicks in and can start running radioactive decay. So that's why we have limiters on these forces. But we had other things going on. We had Einstein with his theory of relativity. As far as most people are concerned, the theory of relativity is E equals mc squared. That's the famous one. That's the one that explains why the atomic bomb works. That is a footnote in the paper. My copy of the paper was published as a 156-page paper. That footnote that establishes E equals mc squared is returned to in an appendix that was added after World War II to explain that in more detail. The main purpose of the theory of relativity and the main discovery was the realization that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. No information, nothing can get from A to B faster than light can get from A to B. That leads to problems on the quantum level. 
Now again, picture this electron as a little billiard ball. If you push on one side of that electron, it'll roll and the other side moves. Or if it's in free space, it doesn't roll, it just moves. Either way, as soon as that left side moves, the right side moves. Because if it's not a rigid structure, then there's some kind of internal structure. So if it can compress, there's something going on inside. If an electron really is an elementary particle, meaning you can't break it down any further, which as far as we can tell is the case, then we have problems. That violates relativity. Because you could push on one side of the electron, the information that has been pushed gets to the other side faster than light because there's zero delay. So what this technically means is that all truly elementary particles, so not just the electrons, but the quarks that make up protons and neutrons as well. Yes, protons and neutrons do have internal structure. That's been confirmed. These particles actually have zero radius. So the electron is not a billiard ball. It's a point. And that point has places it's allowed to be. So going back to the shrinking characters, is it true that a large part of an atom is empty space? Well, if you define the space that's not occupied by the protons, neutrons, and the, the particles that make them up and the electrons as empty space, then yes, they are zero volume in there. So in that region, that space is basically entirely empty. But by that same definition, all of reality is empty space because everything at some level is made up of elementary particles. So everything we see is made up of stuff that has zero volume. And one thing we do know, there's a finite number of particles in any finite space. Therefore, there's a finite number of zero volume things being added in. So they take up zero volume, which means space cannot be occupied in that strict definition of whether or not space is empty. But then this also begs the question, how do things interact? How do we build these atoms? How do we seem to be able to measure the radius of a nucleus if it's made out of zero volume particles? What are they bouncing off of? Well, it's force interactions. As they get close, the force pushes it away. So even though the particle itself is zero volume, they have what they call a wave function. And that wave function defines a region of space where that particle is allowed to be. So the question is, the wave Coming back to wave particle duality, what are these things? Because the original picture we had is this particle, or like a little billiard ball or baseball, a little ball that was the electron. We know that doesn't fit. We've also had scattering experiments where we see that electrons have properties of waves. So just as you can shine light on a prism, and that light splits up in different directions according to its wavelength, or you can put it through a diffraction grating and get bright spots and dark spots. That's all wave-like behavior. You can do that with electrons too. It's different distance scales. So if you throw light at a couple slits, you can get it to split up. You can do that with electrons too, but the slits have to be smaller and closer together. But you can make that happen with electrons as well and with anything. So that's where wave-particle duality came from. The idea was all these elementary particles are both particles and waves. That's the classic interpretation, or semi-classic, because it's not all the way back. The modern idea and modern interpretation is that they're neither particles nor waves, but they are instead some sort of entity that has no macroscopic analog. It's not something you can relate to in our day-to-day -day life because it doesn't exist on scales large enough for us to perceive it directly with our own senses, but it is something that has the properties 
of both particles and waves. So it's an entirely new beast that does both things. So once you have waves, you have wavelengths. So imagine, if you will, a rain barrel, and it's filled with water. Initially, the surface of that water is completely still. Now say you drop a rather large rock into it and make large ripples that start in the center and move out to the sides. You're going to see waves. Those wave crests are going to bounce up and down as they hit the sides. When they hit the edges, they reflect and come back in, giving what we call constructive or destructive interference. Right? If a crest or a high point on the wave is heading towards the edge, when a trough or low part on the wave is coming back from the edge, then when they interact, they can cancel. If we've got crest and crest interacting, you get one larger crest. They will add or subtract from each other according to their own waves. Well, when we go through atomic structures and try to figure out what's going on, we end up having to apply something called the Pauli exclusion principle. This was defined by Wolfgang Pauli. He realized that there are limits to how these particles can interact and what states they're allowed to be in. So without getting into too much detail, all of these subatomic particles, so neutrons, protons, electrons, the quarks that make up neutrons and protons, they all have a property called spin, which is basically angular momentum. So every particle has a little bit of angular momentum and a little magnetic field that goes along with it. And when you have particles like your electrons, your protons, your quarks, your neutrons, then this angular momentum defines a certain amount of statistics. And the way these angular momentums interact with each other from particle to particle means that no two particles can share the same space. They can with a different type of angular momentum, like light has, or like gravitons have, which are the currently theoretical, not yet detected particles that will define the force of gravity and propagate it. So any of our force-carrying particles can share spaces, which is why you get unlimited range. But those particles that do not share space, like your electrons or protons, only one can exist in certain states. And even then, only certain states are allowed. So if you think back to that rain barrel with the ripples, imagine if you're only allowed to have ripples on that surface if there's an exact number of wavelengths between the center and the edge. So you couldn't have crests and troughs slopping up and down on the edges. You'd have one steady point and crests and troughs just bouncing up and down next to it in what we call a standing wave. The states of electrons and protons and neutrons as they create nuclei or as they create electron orbits are more like that standing wave. They only exist in certain spots. That's introduced a little bit in the Bohr model of the atom. So it was Bohr who took Wolfgang Pauli's idea of this Pauli exclusion principle and extended it to the atom saying, okay, there's only specific places that the electrons are allowed to go. And he initially looked just at the hydrogen atom because it only has one electron. Makes the math much, much easier. And by easier, I mean you can define it completely algebraically. As soon as you add a second electron, you've got to go to mathematical methods of just numeric approximations because you cannot solve the algebra. Not that we haven't figured out how, but that we can prove the equations are what we call transcendental, meaning you cannot isolate the variable you're trying to solve for. So if your variable is x, you cannot turn that into x equals something. So, for example, using a high school level example, if you have x times sine x equals y, you will never be able to manipulate that to get it in the form x equals, because x appears both inside and outside of a trigonometric function, and those x's cannot be cancelled. As soon as you get second electrons or more, you're in those situations. 
what they were able to show is that there's only a finite number of electrons. So there's the lowest energy orbit has space for two electrons. The next one has space for eight, the next for eight, the next 18, the next 18. If you'd pull out that periodic table as it exists now, as Dirac rewrote it after Pauli made his discoveries, not as Mendeleev originally created it, but the form that we're used to seeing, the number of elements in a row will tell you how many electrons are allowed in that orbit around a nucleus. So yeah, you could argue that there's a lot of empty space inside an atom. But what these guys were able to show and to prove is that there are only specific places that electrons and protons and other orbits are allowed to be. So when you look at these movies or these comics, where they figure out how to change the size of characters, so you shrink them down, you grow them to larger sizes by rearranging the atomic structures and eliminating that empty space, that doesn't work. If you even if you were somehow able to take an electron and make it go into a smaller orbit than the lowest one we know, that's now closer to the nucleus. With that decrease in average distance, it's more tightly trapped and the chemical properties change because it's not as easy to pull that electron away for chemical reactions. The electric attraction between that negatively charged electron and that positively charged nucleus is now greater because, as we said, the further you are, the weaker it gets, which means the stronger you, or the closer you are, the stronger it gets. So a lot of these science-changing heroes have issues. On top of the fact that at the quantum level, we cannot change the size of these bodies without completely changing the way they interact. Now, biological systems involve a tremendous amount of synchronization and synchronized systems. You start messing that up and break those chemical reactions, you kill that person. It's just far too complex for a simple shrinking down process to solve it. We also have issues with conservation of matter. So if Ant-Man is tiny, the way he's represented, he loses mass, right? He can duck into someone's pocket and not have them notice. Well, if he still had the mass of a six-foot-tall average human being when he jumped in your pocket, you'd notice. He wouldn't still be in that pocket. He'd rip that pocket off whatever part of your body it is, right? It's not going to support a six-foot-tall person. We have the flip side when he grows, right? His density would then drop down considerably. So he wouldn't have the same impact, which does mean he would find it actually easier to walk across shaky surfaces when he's large and harder when he's small. If you think about the basic concept of snowshoes, snowshoes work because they distribute their weight and decrease the pressure that your body makes on the surface of the snow. Right? So if the bottom of your feet are suddenly five times larger than they used to be, you've only got a fifth of that pressure. So a fifth of the force pushing down, you're less likely to break through the snow. So if Hank Pym or Giant Man grows, he would put less impact on the ground, but also less impact on anything else he touched or pulled. But when he shrinks, he puts more impact in. So Ant-Man would go straight through the surface of that snow. He wouldn't be able you know, to run across a string from one point to another unless they have mass changes. And if you have mass changes, that's opening up a whole other ball of wax. When he shrinks, where does his mass go? When he returns to normal, how does he get it back? If he's losing mass, which particles is he losing? The brain is a complex system and it doesn't have a lot of overlap. If all of a sudden 99% of his brain is gone... How is he going to remember his memories? How is he going to retain the knowledge? 
How is he going to retain his personality? How is he going to retain his basic motor functions? It just completely breaks the physiology when you have a shrinking or growing hero. That doesn't mean that the characters can't be enjoyed as you're reading them. I've enjoyed a lot of stories with these size-changing heroes. But to get that enjoyment out of them, I can't view them as science fiction heroes. I have to view them as fantasy heroes. So they talk about science on the page. The science in the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe does not match the science in our universe. That much is very clear. So they're writing a completely different set of scientific rules. Apparently this works in their universe. It wouldn't work in ours. There's also a lot more to go through, especially on the pressure side and whether or not these heroes retain the same ability, like the same strength of punches, the same attacks. This podcast is long enough as it is. This is about the, the size we're going for, the length we're going for. If you want to see an additional discussion on this topic, your best bet is to pick up The Physics of Superheroes by Jim Kakalios. I believe it's pronounced. If not, I apologize. He goes through that end in great detail. It's an excellent book. When we're going through the topics here, I'm going to be trying to go out of my way. I didn't do it for this one because it was a, a listener request. I'm going to be pulling out my copy of that book, going through it, and deliberately trying to avoid to cover the same topics that he's already covered so well. So that wraps up what we have to say about Pym Particles and Hank Pym's size-changing abilities, and by extension, how the atom size-changing ability works and other such shrinking and growing characters. As I said, we do have other ideas for future podcasts, including Iron Man's repulsors, the Hulk's jumping abilities, and Superman's powers, which will probably be broken up into multiple chapters. If you have your own ideas you'd like to hear about, please send them to me at bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. Uh, feedback can also be sent there or left on iTunes as a review. So that wraps it up for this month. Please join us again next month. And thank you for listening. Final addendum. This podcast was recorded and planned before I was able to read the final issue of FF Volume 2, which is issue 16. They do some new things with pin particles in that issue that I would like to discuss, but rather than give spoilers to an excellent issue with an excellent run, I'm going to shift that off till down the road, at least until the trade paperback is out. So people have a chance to grab that story and read it for what it is. It's uh, FF Volume 2. It's the one that was started by Matt Fraction as a writer. And it had the All Right family helping out with scripts and with art all the way through. Definitely worth checking out. It's a 16-issue run. So that will be coming later this year.